Luke chapter 8 sort of begins a different phase in the ministry of Jesus. Now, it's not radically different. He's still doing his ministry in the region of Galilee. But Luke chapter 8 as a whole is sort of fascinating. You can very neatly divide it into two halves. The first half we're going to consider this week. The next half we're going to consider next week. The first half has to deal with the words of Jesus. The second half has to deal with the works of Jesus. And we'll take a look more closely at the works of Jesus as they're explained in the second half of Luke chapter 8, as I said before, next week. But the real emphasis in these first 21 verses of Luke chapter 8 is all about the word of Jesus and how significant it is. So look at it right here, verse 1. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons, and Joanna the wife of Chuzza, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others who provided for him from their sustenance. I think it's fascinating there how in verse 1 it tells us that he went through every city and village. What this seems to be is the second phase of Jesus' itinerant ministry through the region of Galilee. That basically he conducted some kind of tour. And I'm not saying that they you know, had t-shirts on the back with the different villages he listed and all that kind of thing. But he had some kind of informal tour where he went about the villages and the cities of Galilee preaching and proclaiming the kingdom of God. And when he had done all of that once, what did he do? He said, well, let's do it again. I'm going to go back to those same places and preach the word again. And to me, that's very, very um, uh, pregnant with insight. It shows just how needful it is for us to hear something of God's kingdom again and again that once just isn't enough. And so Jesus very deliberately went back over the same area to bring the message again. But notice, the focus of his ministry was to do what? Preaching and bringing glad tidings. Glad tidings is just good news. He was very literally preaching the gospel, the good news, and he brought it to as many people as he could. Please remember, in the second half, next week, when we get into the second half of Luke chapter 8, you're going to see Jesus do amazing works. And he did amazing works. We don't want to minimize that in the slightest. But have it square in your own mind. Jesus was a preacher and a teacher who did amazing things, who God used to do miraculous things. It wasn't that he was primarily a miracle worker who occasionally... Uh, you know, taught a few things. No, the core of his ministry was preaching and teaching. Now, the other thing that we find fascinating in just these first few verses of the chapter is how it mentioned in verse 2 that certain women followed with the rest of the disciples and apparently were just mixed in with the larger group of people that followed Jesus. I want this to be set square in your mind, that Jesus had 12 disciples who later became apostles. But that was not by any means the only group of people that followed Jesus. He had the particular 12, but then there was also a larger group that followed him as well. And among that larger group were certain women. Now you and I go, okay, great. You know, there was a ladies ministry there and Jesus' followers. No, if we were people in the first century reading this when Luke first wrote it, we'd gasp just a little bit. You mean Jesus? This prominent Jewish rabbi was open to the idea of teaching women. 
because in those days it was very rare for a rabbi to teach women or even to associate with them in any ways. And what did Jesus say? He said, the kingdom of God belongs to women as well. They can learn. They can be taught. And so Jesus had this remarkably open heart towards women. He said, I want to bring my word to them as well. And then it notes some particular women among these certain women. For example, it notes there in verse 2, Mary called Magdalene. Now, this woman had been demon-possessed until Jesus freed her. Now, many people also assume that she was given over to sin and immorality, and that's kind of the Hollywood picture of Mary Magdalene. I just want you to know, it has nothing to do with it. There's no biblical evidence of Mary being an immoral woman, being promiscuous, so to speak. No, but it does say that she was demon-possessed, and Jesus freed her of the demons that tormented her life. And then look at the next woman that's mentioned specifically by name. Verse 3, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Now, this is an interesting thing. To be Herod's steward basically means that Joanna was married to Herod, who was an extremely wealthy man, very wealthy and influential, She was married to his chief financial officer, to a man who was very high up in the administration and the household affairs of a great and mighty king, a very wealthy king as well. And you know what fascinates me about this? Think about how these two women got along together among the women that followed Jesus. Just these first two names that you have mentioned, a woman who used to be demon-possessed, and I just assume she must have been a piece of work. I mean, look, you you know, you can't be being demon-possessed for any amount of time. It must leave a mark upon you. And I mean, yes, she was freed, but let's just say, I mean, she, she probably wasn't filled with exquisite social graces and wonderful manners. Then again, who's this other one? This woman who comes from sort of a high-born place, you know, and who rubs shoulders with the wealthy and the influential. And you know what's beautiful? They got along together beautifully, as far as we know. There they are, just a beautiful thing. Mary Magdalene and Joanna, right there together among the women who followed Jesus. And I'll tell you what else is wonderful about them, is that those two women are specifically noted as being among the first ones to discover the risen Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's very powerful. These two women who followed Jesus right here at this time. And so we just kind of say it's a beautiful thing that these women did this. And not only did they follow Jesus and listen to his teaching, but verse 3 tells us that they provided for him from their sustenance. I think it's remarkable that Jesus did this, that Jesus received offerings, so to speak, from other people to survive on. You know what it shows? It shows the humble nature of Jesus. You should understand Jesus did not need this. When Jesus needed money, one of the things he did on one occasion, said, Peter, go out and go fish. And there's money right in the mouth of the fish. Providing money, providing bread, providing anything was no problem for Jesus. He could do it any way he chose. But he said, no, at least for some time in my life, I am going to make myself reliant upon the gifts and offerings of other people, including these women in this situation. And this is what I just want to point out about the nature of Jesus, is that it shows that he was humble. Sometimes our pride is shown in that we won't accept help from anybody. But Jesus was humble enough to say, I'll let these women provide for me. It's just a remarkable scene 
look, I should say, not only into the generosity of these women and these others who followed Jesus, but into the humility of Jesus himself. Okay, going on now to verse 4. And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. By the way, notice this. Jesus, on many occasions, taught large crowds of people. Now, I, I, I don't know why I feel impressed to point that out, other than to say there, there are people who come from time to time and act as if there's something unholy about large groups of people coming together to hear the word of God, that, that it should only be small groups. Now, look, believe me, I believe in small groups. I believe in small gatherings of believers who get together for mutual teaching and worship and edification. That's a beautiful thing in the kingdom of God. You'll never hear me say something against the idea of Christians gathering together in small groups. It's a wonderful thing. But, but can't we just be honest and admit that there's also plenty of examples in the New Testament and beyond of believers gathering together in big groups to hear the word of God and to worship? So Jesus again, verse 4, And when a great multitude had gathered, and they had come to him from every city, he spoke by a parable. Jesus is now going to share a parable. The idea behind a parable, literally the word means something like this, to throw alongside of. It's a story thrown alongside the truth intended to teach the truth. Parables have been called, I believe somewhat accurately, Earthly stories with heavenly meanings. They're not just anecdotes. They're not merely allegories. They're not just illustrations. Parables are something different. And one thing I want you to remember about parables, because we're going to encounter a lot of them in the Gospel of Luke. Parables are generally taken to teach one main point or principle. You can get into a lot of trouble by trying to make Every small detail of a parable rich with a great theological significance. That's not the idea behind a parable. Generally, parables teach a broad theological truth. And we're supposed to grab onto it. You'll see what I mean as we make our way through this. So what does Jesus say? Well, look at how he brings us through this parable. Starting now at verse 5, he says, A sower went out to sow his seed. Now, please picture this in your mind. A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a a hundredfold. When he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now Jesus spoke just giving a story describing the actions of a farmer using the agricultural customs of his day. You and I might read this story and go, man, that farmer's stupid. You're throwing seed everywhere and some of it's on bad ground. What are you doing, Mr. Dumb Farmer? No. According to the agricultural customs of the day, that's exactly how they did it. Generally speaking, they sowed the seed first, then they plowed the ground. They might not know if there was a rocky shelf underneath the topsoil until after they had sowed the seed and tried to run the plow through there. So again, you just have to understand, he's speaking in 
completely according to the idiom of the agricultural customs of their day. And I just want you to stop right now. You see, I'm a little annoyed with some of you right now because you've instantly got ahead of the story. And you said, I know what the seed is. I, I know what the, you know, I know what the, um, what the birds are. I know what the, no, stop right now. I want you to pretend like you've never heard this before. And Jesus, just stop at the end of verse 8. And what do you know? Well, I know a farmer went out to sow seeds. Now, if you didn't know anything beyond verse 8, could you make sense of this parable exactly as Jesus describes it later on? Probably not. I'm going to guess not. Maybe you could. But let's just take it piece by piece without trying to spiritualize it at all. We're not going to look for the spiritual application one bit. We're just going to seek to understand the story as Jesus told it. He told a story about a man sowing seed, and the seed landed on four kinds of soil. By the way, I prefer to call this parable the parable of the soils, not the parable of the sower. Because really, the most interesting aspect of this parable is not the action of the sower. The sower could be doing his job with his eyes closed. And sometimes it seems like he is doing his job with his eyes closed. No, the the most interesting thing is not the work of the sower. The most interesting thing in this parable is the condition of each kind of soil. By the way, the difference in this parable is not the seed. The same seed is cast upon all different crowds. Don't spiritualize it in your mind yet. We're just looking at the story. Okay, the same seed is cast on four types of ground. What are the four types of ground? Well, first of all, one's called the wayside. That would be like the sidewalk, the path that everybody would walk on. It would be hard and compact. What happens? Well, it it doesn't go in. Nothing gets on there. Birds come along and they eat it. The second kind of soil was on rock, verse 6. This is where the soil was thin, lying upon a stony shelf. And on this ground, the seed springs up quickly because of the warmth of the soil, but the seed is unable to take root because of the rocky shelf and because of the lack of moisture. Then there's a third type of soil, verse 3, among thorns. It's described soil that's fertile. And perhaps this soil is too fertile because the, the, the grain grows up just fine, but so do thorns. And the thorns come along and choke out the grain. And then finally, the good ground describes the ground that was both fertile and weed-free. It was a good productive crop that grew in the good ground. And it even grew to a hundredfold increase. Okay, now if you were just stop at the end of verse 8. Honestly, do you think we could really figure out this parable? I don't know. Maybe we could. Maybe we couldn't. But I just want you to put yourself in the minds of Jesus' original hearers at the end of verse 8. And what are they thinking? They're thinking, my, that's an interesting story. Seen that every day. What does it mean? Matter of fact, this is exactly what the disciples of Jesus said. Look at verse 9. Then his disciples asked him, saying, what does this parable mean? Now, I know we, we want to take this as another opportunity to tee off on the disciples and say how stupid they were. But you and I only say that because we know that we've read the rest of the verses. We'd be saying the same thing. You might say, well, what? Um, maybe uh, they want to know, Jesus, you told the story. You tell us what it means. What does this parable mean? And he said, 
to you, speaking to the disciples, to you, it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest of them, Jesus motions to the multitude, it is given in parables, seeing that they may not see and hearing that they may not understand. Now, please understand, this is something very fascinating. Jesus says, you are my disciples. You are committed to me. I will teach you with greater clarity than I will teach those who are not initiated. To those who are the casual hearers. To the casual hearers, I will put things in parables. That's what he says in verse 10. Look at it with me. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it's given in parables. Please, ladies and gentlemen, Many people believe that parables are just illustrations to make the truth as easy to understand as possible. That's not really the idea behind parables. Parables are more like puzzles or riddles than they are like illustrations. You can understand it if you have the right key. Now, the disciples... They wanted the things of God, so to them were given the mysteries of the kingdom. They could be spoken to plainly, but to the others, Jesus spoke to them in parables. Why? He quotes a verse from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9, to explain why he spoke to them in parables. Look, this is what it says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. Seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Jesus is, understand, is explaining to us that parables are not illustrations meant to make the truth as simple as possible. Rather, they're a way of presenting God's message that makes it accessible to the sensitive heart, but to the hardened heart, it's just like they hear an interesting story that just doesn't really matter much to them. Do you know why Jesus did that? Because he did not want to heap condemnation upon these insensitive hearts. Now, again, I I know I'm being a little bit repetitive, but I I feel I need to break us out of this thing that we usually think of as parables being illustrations. You see, a good teacher can illustrate by stating a truth and then illustrating the truth through a story or through an analogy. But when Jesus used parables, he didn't start usually. I'll make there some exceptions. But normally, he didn't start by stating a truth and then illustrate it with a story. No. Instead, parables were like a doorway. Jesus' listeners stood at the doorway and heard him. If they were not interested, they stayed on the outside. If they were interested, they would walk through the doorway and learn more about the truth that went beyond the doorway. By the way, if you didn't understand the key to this parable, you wouldn't understand it at all. Now, I'll get to what the key of the parable is in just a few moments. But I just want you to imagine what different people thought about this parable in different situations. Okay, there's a farmer listening to Jesus tell this story. We haven't got to the meaning of it at all yet, have we? There's a farmer listening to Jesus. What does the farmer think? He thinks, he's telling me that I have to be more careful in the way that I cast my seed. I I guess I've wasted an awful lot of seed. Thank you, Jesus, for telling me that story. That's what he thinks the point of the story is. And then there's a politician there listening to Jesus. What does the politician think? He says, 
He's telling me that I need to make a farm educational program to help farmers more efficiently cast their seed. This is going to be a big boost in my re-election campaign. That's what the politician thinks. Then there's a newspaper reporter there. The newspaper reporter. Did you know that there weren't newspapers in that day? I'm just making an illustration. There's a newspaper reporter there. And what does the newspaper reporter say? He says, he's telling me that there's a big story out there about a bird problem and how it affects the farming community. That's a great idea for a series in my newspaper. And then there's a salesman out there. The salesman thinks, he's encouraging me in my fertilizer sales. I could make that farmer more efficient if he only used my product. This is great. You see, If you don't get the key to the parable, you don't understand much of anything about it. Now, if you think the seed represents money, you miss the parable. If you think the seed represents hard work, you miss the parable. If you think the seed represents love or grace, you miss the parable. What does the seed represent? He says it in the following verse, Luke chapter 8, verse 11. He says, the seed is the word of God. Now, as soon as Jesus gives you that key to unlock the parable, what? It all falls into place. Oh, but how different it would be if the seed represented love or if the seed represented hard work or if the seed represented, you know, a dozen other things. No, but once you have Jesus tell you, if you couldn't figure it out yourself, the seed represents the word of God, then you say, great, now I know what he's talking about. And we can get from it. Verse 11, check it out. He says this. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Okay, again, Jesus likened the word of God. And I would say he means the word of God in two phrases, two senses, I should say. One primary, one secondary. Primarily, he means the written revelation of God. That's the primary sense. But there's a secondary sense in which he means it. I think he also means it as the faithfully preached word of God. Written and faithfully preached, the seed is the word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, do you ever think about it sometimes? What enormous power there is within a seed. A single seed passed down through generations has the potential to feed thousands upon thousands of people. It's been put in sort of a quaint and cliche way, but it's really a pretty good cliche that you can count the number of seeds in an apple, but you can never count the number of apples in a seed. I mean, there can be millions and millions of apples that come from one tiny seed. The power in a seed is enormous. It has the power to give life and to sustain people and to do all sorts of things if it is planted, or maybe you could say received, into the right conditions. So by Jesus just giving us this key, the seed is the word of God. Oh, now I get it. And the rest of it just makes perfect sense. Look now starting at verse 12. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. Then the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. But the ones on the rock are those when they hear, they receive the word with joy. These have no root, who believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. 
Now the ones who fell among thorns are those, when they have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. But the ones that fell on good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. You see, the whole parable unfolds very naturally and very clearly once you have the key. Jesus gave us the key. The seed is the word of God. So then we look at verse 12 and we see the first category of ground, the seed that falls on the wayside. What do we say about that? Those are like people who hear it falls on hard ground. It doesn't penetrate. And what happens? The birds of the air come immediately and take it away. They eat it up. And Satan does a work from keeping the word of God from penetrating a heart and a mind. The wayside soil represents those who never hear the word of God with understanding. Did you know that one of Satan's chief works in the world is robbing people of the word of God? So often we think of Satan being busy about the work of whispering things into our ears. You know, most of the time, he's trying to block information from ever coming to you. Because the Word of God, if it touches your life, it'll transform your life. And so Satan and all his evil servants in the spiritual realm, they work overtime to keep the Word of God from penetrating us. This tells us something that's really sort of sobering. And for me, I just saw it all afresh here, that, you know, studying for this week. I, I kind of don't want to think about it, but I have to think about it. Satan is at work when the word of God is being preached. He's busy as he can be. Satan seems to believe in the power of God's word more than a lot of preachers do. Because Satan looks at that word of God and he goes, that's a seed that can bring great ruin to my kingdom. I better do everything I can to keep that from preventing. The, the, the faithless, unbiblical preacher says, well, it doesn't really matter, does it? I don't really need to put much of the word of God into my message. But Satan takes it seriously. You know, notice something, how specifically the work of Satan is described in verse 12. First of all, it says, then comes the devil. When? Then. Right at the time when the seed is cast. The bird knows right when the seed is available to come and eat. He comes at the opportune time. You could put it this way. You could say that the devil is punctual in his work. He knows just the right time to come during preaching. He knows how to bring a distraction or some kind of, of, of a diversion at just the right moment or actually just at the wrong moment. You know, sometimes the preacher himself provides the distraction. Sometimes the preacher has some manner of speaking or, you know, strange gesture or funny appearance that provides distractions from the Word of God. Sometimes the preacher provides the distraction Sometimes the environment provides the distraction, and sometimes it's accidentally a word or a story that the preacher tells that sort of triggers an association. The, the, the preacher tells a story about being out on a boat, and you think, yeah, what about my boat? You know, i got to clean my boat. 
you know, man, I got to get that in for repair. And then also, nobody intended it. Nobody was working at it. But do you see, it takes a lot of discipline to say, no, I'm not going to get distracted. It could be from a word or a story or an anecdote. Sometimes the distraction comes um, with, with having your mind filled with yesterday's or tomorrow's checklist or your after-service activities. Sometimes the cute child or the clever whispered remark from the congregation, sometimes it'll do the job. But I just want you to understand, it can be a serious thing to be distracted from the Word of God. And then notice what it says. It says it right there in verse 12. That the devil comes and takes the word. That scares me a little bit. Because he doesn't just say that he tries to take it. He says that he succeeds. He actually does it. At least some of the time the devil is effective in this work of taking away the word. And then what does he do? When it says that he takes the word, it shows his purpose. As I said before, the devil is actually at this point a pretty good theologian. He knows that faith and salvation come to people who hear the word of God. And so he works hard to keep salvation and spiritual strength away from people by distracting them from the word of God. Let me say this. I know that's pretty gloom and doom, what I've just told you right now. But actually, Satan's strategy gives us a lot of wisdom if we'll receive it. If we'll receive it the right way. It tells us this, that if a heart does stay in contact with the Word of God, there's a good chance that repentance and faith and spiritual strength are going to come. Satan wants to keep you away from it. When you realize, oh, if I stay on it, you're toast, devil. You're gone. Your strategy will not work. Well, that's the one kind of soil. Look at the next kind of soil, verse 13. But the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy, and these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of temptation, they fall away. This seed that falls on the thin layer of soil that's on top of a rocky shelf, it picks up quickly. It it grows fast. It's a warm environment. It's like being in a little greenhouse, as far as that's concerned. It grows right up. But then it quickly fades away for two reasons. First of all, it can put down no deep root. But I want you to point your attention back to something else. It also says something very powerfully in Luke chapter 8, verse 6, when he first described the parable. He said it was because the seed lacked moisture. That's why it didn't bear fruit, because it lacked moisture. Ladies and gentlemen, if this moisture is a picture of anything would we not say that it is a picture of the living water of the Spirit of God? The Word goes forth, but if there's something circumvented to have the Holy Spirit working at the same time that the Word of God is working, then it's of little effect. Listen, this is a great problem for many people. They hear the Word of God, but so to speak, it lacks moisture. There's no anointing of the Spirit, perhaps, upon the preacher. There's no anointing of the Spirit, perhaps, on the listeners. This is why you need to be diligent in prayer before you hear the Word of God. Lord God, fill me with your Spirit. Please open me to the voice of your Spirit. I'm coming to hear your Word, but your Word needs to be joined to the moisture of the Holy Spirit, the living water that flows from your throne. Then it'll bear great fruit. As you might expect, Spurgeon preached just a killer sermon on this idea of lacking moisture. 
and he detailed some indications of the lack of moisture. And I'm just going to read them to you. These are Spurgeon's indications of a lack of moisture. Ready? Doctrine without feeling. Experience without humiliation or humbleness. Practice without heart love. Faith without repentance. Confidence without reservation. Action without spirituality. Zeal without communion with God. All of those things have an indication that there's something going on. A seed is there, but it's not being watered by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, picking up speed now, the third one, verse 14. Now the ones who fell among the thorns are those when they have heard go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and they bring no fruit to maturity. As that seed falling among the thorns would grow the stalks of grain, yet the stalks of the thorns grow up as well, and they're choked out. And so some people respond to the word, and they grow for a while, but then they're choked out. They're stopped in their spiritual walk. Why? Because of the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this world. I don't know. Do I have to belabor this point? Or can I just lay it out before this audience, who I believe is listening, not only to me, you're trying to listen to the Spirit of God, that there's a danger in your life and in the life of people that you know and love, that spiritual growth, that spiritual fruit is being crowded out by what? By the cares, the riches, and the pleasures of this life. Please, friends, it'll do no good for us to say, well, that must be somebody. I don't know who, but it must be somebody. Lord Jesus, don't let the word of God be choked out in our life by these things. Next, finally, verse 15. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with noble and a good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Some people are like the good ground And they receive the word with a good and a noble heart. They keep the word. They bear fruit. And thus they fulfill the purpose of the seed. Now, obviously, this is the desired result in everybody. And I know it's very easy for us to say, well, let's see. Am I one, two, three, or four? Ah, four. Okay. I mean, after all, you're here tonight. I don't have a doubt that... It's predominantly fours that are here on a Wednesday evening. But look, if we're going to be honest, don't we learn something from every one of the four soils? Haven't there been times when the word of God has just been distracted out of our heart? Haven't there been times where it's sprung up quickly, but it's had no root, no moisture, and that's been the problem? Hasn't there been a time in your life or my life where where God had something rich to communicate to us by his word, but we allowed the cares and the pleasures and the riches of this life crowded out? But there's been other times, thank the Lord, that his word has borne rich fruit. I guess what I'm just trying to say is that there's something of us in every one of these four. Now, what does this mean? It doesn't mean... Well, gee, I guess you're the stony ground. You know, stinks to be you. No. No. This is what it means. It means right now, why don't you, in the quietness of your heart, 
plead to God and say, God, won't you plow up the ground of my heart? I want to be the good ground. I, I want to be that ground that receives the word of God. We're supposed to hear like something like this and be prompted to true action. All right, let's get to the end of the section here. Verse 16. Continuing on the same theme, Jesus says, No one, when he has lit a lamp, covers it with a vessel or puts it under a bed, but sets it on a lampstand that those may enter and see the light. For nothing is secret that will not be revealed, nor anything hidden that will not be known and come to light. If you have the truth of God, you have a solemn responsibility to make it visible to other people. It's in the same way that if you have the cure for a life-threatening disease, you have a moral responsibility to distribute that cure to other people. And if you have something good from the Word of God, there's just a moral responsibility. You have to be a carrier of that. I think you have a responsibility as an individual believer to either spread the Word yourself or to spread the influence of God's word by bringing other people to a place or an opportunity for them to hear it. It's best to do both. Why don't you just do both? But this is what God wants us to do, to let that shine. Look at verse 18. He says, therefore, take heed how you hear, for whoever has to him more will be given, and to whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Man, now that's heavy. You see what he said in verse 18? Take heed how you hear. Isn't that a great application verse from the parable of the soils? Take heed how you hear. Oh, you think I'm doing all the, all the work here tonight? No, I, I'm doing the easier work. You have the harder work of hearing and grabbing onto it and wrestling to what the Holy Spirit does. Man, I don't mean to just keep shoveling this out on you here tonight, but I just have to say it. You're going to be held accountable for how you hear. Now, I, inwardly, maybe a few people are not. Well, then I'm not coming ever again. <laughs> Look, it's true. You will be held to account for how you hear. It's dangerous to hear the word of God in too passive of a way. Um. Charles Spurgeon has this great little book called Eccentric Preachers, where he talks about crazy preachers. And it's just a fun little book. And in one of the, the stories he tells in that book, he tells a story about this preacher in England who comes to this sleepy little congregation in this backwards village somewhere in England. And he comes there, and there's just a few people there in the congregation, and he's the new pastor there. I don't know if it's his first sermon there, if it's just pretty early in his pastor. He comes up to the pulpit, and he's just sitting there. And you know what he does? He takes out a hatchet and he starts hacking the pulpit and just like splintering it. And there's hardly anybody there. But he's just wailing on it. He's splintering it. The things are being destroyed. And the people just, oh, they're having the vapors. They can't, oh my gosh, what's the pastor doing? He's going crazy. Oh, somebody stop him. What's he doing? And what are you doing, pastor? And you know what he said? He said, I felt it better to destroy this pulpit than it remain as a witness against you for your unfaithful hearing of the word of God. Now look, we all know that there is a such thing as unfaithful preaching. And there's a lot of it in our world today. But you have a responsibility as a hearer. So what should you do? You should take heed 
how you hear. You should hear with attention. You should hear believingly. You should hear candidly. You should hear devoutly. You should hear earnestly. You should hear with feeling. You should hear gratefully. Why? Look at it right there in verse 18. For whoever has to him, more will be given. When you receive the word of God of gladness, more will be given to you. But then it says there in verse 18, if you don't have it, then even what you seem to have will be taken away to you. Sometimes people seem to have something spiritually when they don't. Isn't this exactly what Jesus said to the church at Laodicea? If you were to ask the people in church at Laodicea how you're doing, it's a, hey, man, we're great, we're rich, we're wealthy, we have need of nothing. What did Jesus see when he looked at that congregation? This is what he said. He said, you're wretched, you're miserable, you're poor, you're blind, you're naked. You seem to have something, but you've got nothing, and even what you think you have is going to be taken away from you. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Now, the last little scene we have in our text here this evening is one more example of how important the word of God is. Look at it here, verse 19. Then his mother and his brothers came to him and could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told to him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered and said, my mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. You had a scene in your mind? Big crowd all around. And people shout up to Jesus, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are back here. You know, they want the VIP seating. Can't you come up and get, you know, give them the nice place? And Jesus doesn't say, oh, yes, bring them to the front. Now, maybe he said that after he said this. But what's his first reaction? He goes, who are they? You want to know who my real mother and brothers are? Those who hear the word of God and do it. I imagine that in the fashion of the cartoons I loved when I was a child, jaws dropped to the floor when Jesus said that. They couldn't believe it. What? Please remember, folks, in these cultures, nothing was more important than family relations. Blood was everything. You had a sacred obligation to your family. For Jesus to say something like this would send people into fainting fits. But he meant it. Who are the people closest to me, Jesus says? Those that I draw near to through my word. Those who hear my word and obey it, those are the ones who are really close to me. Closer than blood. Closer than genetics are those people I have a spiritual communion with through the word of God. Friends, is that you? Do you want to be close to Jesus? He gives you an astounding way to draw close to him. Now, I, I hope you felt the closeness of Jesus towards you right now. You, you can sense it at home when you, when you open up the Bible for yourself. But a Bible reading, a Bible studying, A Bible-loving people will know Jesus in a very close way. He promised it so. Now, I don't want anybody to think for a moment that the entire Christian life is encompassed by the Word of God and studying and knowing the Word of God. No. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of activity. There's a lot of experience in the Christian life. And you know what? That's the second half of Luke chapter 8. But isn't it beautiful how in this first half there's such a powerful emphasis on the Word of God. 
Let's pray together. Jesus, I want to be closer to you, Lord. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would open up my heart, my mind, that you would plow in any way that you need to so that my heart, my mind would be fertile ground for the seed of the word of God. That I wouldn't hide it. That I'd be careful how I hear it. And through that all, Lord, that I would draw close to you. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.